Welcome to From the Booth, the podcast sponsored by BYU International Cinema, where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema. Today we'll be previewing the films coming up from the 19th to 22nd of February. I'm Chip Oscarson, co-director of International Cinema. Joining me today, I have Professor Mark Yamada, fellow co-director. Hello again. And Marilor Oscarson, the assistant director. Welcome as always. Good to be here. Uh, we have a special guest with us today, too. We have Jojo Hegstrom-Pratt, our sound engineer, usually on the other side of the microphone. He's going to be here to help out, too. Welcome, Jojo. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned, the films that we'll be discussing today will be playing the 19th to the 22nd of February. They include The Wave, a Norwegian disaster film directed by Roar Utog from 2015. It's the next in our Anthropocene cinema series. We have Millennium Actress, a Japanese anime from 2001 written and directed by Satoshi Kon. We have the last installment of Sergei Bondarchuk's 1966 adaptation of Tolstoy's War and Peace. This segment is called Pierre Buzikov. And then finally, we have a documentary about the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, directed by Abby Ginsberg from 2017, and they came for us. So let's start with The Wave. Marilor, what should we be looking for when we watch The Wave? A big wave coming for, <laughs> Lots of water, right? for everybody on the big screen. So it's based on a true events that happened 80 years ago in a beautiful fjord in Norway. It's in Gerhanger. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But it's filmed on location, and so you have this absolutely beautiful scenery. And 80 years ago, a piece of, of the mountain just collapsed and created a tsunami. So this is based on, on reality. Of course, now we're, we're dealing with a 250-foot tidal wave coming for the, the village, and it is a catastrophe film. A few things about this film that I thought were interesting to, to learn is that, first of all, it did very well in Norway, better than some of the films that came out from America that year. The Norwegians really were interested in, in watching this film. Anne Daltorp, who is the main actress, has a phobia of water, and yet she spent most of her screening time uh, <laughs> Something she should have shared time. with her agent at some point yeah, in time, probably. in or underwater. Um, one of the scenes that, that is in the film that you will recognize uh, very like easily, for that scene that was filmed in a studio, they used like 40,000 liters of water. And that was one of the most expensive scenes in Norwegian cinema. So expect a lot of action. Um, Spectacle, right? Yes, absolutely. Well, I think that one of the interesting things about this film, and the reason we chose it to put it in our Anthropocene Cinema series, is that it works very well as an allegory for climate change, right? And for environmental disaster more generally, that this is one of the challenges of things like climate change, is that how do you visualize something that is necessarily abstract and part of a, a, a greater system. And disaster films has been one of the responses to that. And we have good examples of these, of course, coming from, from Hollywood uh, over the last few decades. I mean, it's nothing new. The, the disaster that, that we imagine that's inspiring the films changes, but the, the actual spectacles don't always change that much. But the real problem, as I was mentioning with climate change, is that it's precisely its invisibility. And so there's this desire to render the invisible visible in some kind of tangible way. Uh, Rob Nixon refers to the invisibility of climate catastrophe and environmental degradation generally as slow violence, right? There's a kind of violence that's perpetrated on the poor and the vulnerable, particularly in the global south, that is difficult to quantify because it doesn't show up in immediate kinds of ways. It's the accumulation over a long period of time. 
Norway, of course, is deeply complicit in climate change insofar that it's an oil-producing country, but it also has a lot of guilt about that as well. It's kind of, you have both of those facts that, that run parallel to each other. So that might be something to kind of keep in mind as you're watching this is, you know, in what ways is this trying to help us think through a parallel situation where you have scientists who are trying to use data trying to help you know a public see something they don't want to see you know here in the film it's tour season it's scenic you know nobody wants to disrupt the social and economic life of the village uh, unnecessarily and yet it you know does it come at a you know a unreasonable cost ultimately because of the what ends up happening so we'll we'll revisit this in our review and we'll see how that that holds up yeah let's turn to millennium actress tell us what we should know about this film and this filmmaker so what I think is especially interesting about Satoshi Kon is that if you buy into auteur theory, he's one of the premier anime auteur filmmakers. Across his career, everything he worked on were all focused on the same things. And sadly, he passed away young, I think at age 42, and I think this year is the 10th year anniversary of his passing. So I'm kind of happy that we're showing his films here at IC. Jojo, so you mentioned kind of other directors of, of anime. What makes him different than like Miyazaki and others in terms of style, in terms of his worldview? Yeah, so what he's really interested in is identity and reality, notions of reality, and especially manipulating that reality visually. For instance, he does this in, in different films, this takes different shapes. In his last film, Paprika, dreams are coming out and manifesting themselves in the real world, and characters are going in and out of dreams, and it's not always clear when we're in a dream or when we're in reality or what's happening and there's also dream versions of the real life characters so there's some union archetypes at play there yeah his films are really great to when you're teaching editing or transitions because there's <laughs> so many tra- i mean you have like match yeah cards exactly and, you know, back and forth and it just kind of as the way he kind of brings these different like you were talking about these different worlds there's cinematic worlds there's his- history there's fiction all this gets blended together in interesting ways. Yeah, exactly. And I, I don't think there's anyone quite like him other than, I think, a theorist and filmmaker Maya Darren. But like other than that, he's kind of in a league of his own where you have these just marvelous match cuts where you go from one scene and quickly transition into another or they're, they're going across space and time between the edit. Yeah. I remember when I was watching Millennium Actress for the first time this last fall when we were building the program, I, I felt literally breathless, mm-hmm. you know, in, in watching. I mean, it, it is going so quick from one, like you say, from one reality, one context to the next. And the, the transitions are really amazing because you, you're not disoriented that way that it's like, well, okay, what's this? You, you're able to follow that, but it's always, where's this? Yeah, when's exactly. This? What? And then that's the level of disorientation. And, and it, it was a kind of, I mean, I felt like I was running you yeah, know, through, yeah. through this film in some ways and that I couldn't quite catch my breath and it kept me always off center somehow. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think he's especially good at that. So I think some things to look for in Millennium Actress, 
look for those transitions. What ways is he kind of playing with our notion and idea of time and space? Another thing that I think is particularly interesting about this film is we're kind of learning about the life of this actress through her films because the plots of the films mirror the reality of her life. And so it keeps you guessing whether or not what's happening is literal or are we watching a film, her film, or is this in fact furthering her story of her life as she's trying to find this person she's in love with. Yeah, it's a great opportunity for our audiences to see a film that hasn't been accessible up until now, right? There's yeah. a new restoration and it's released Brand again. So it's a really great chance to see that. Yeah, we, we have had trouble getting uh, Miyazaki films from the distributor uh, because of uh, they only like to show them on, or at least have up to this point, only wanted to show 35mm prints and on systems that you know we haven't been able to show here. And it's been kind of a blessing in some ways in that it's really invited us to think about other you know, Japanese animators who have been overshadowed, at least in North America, by um, by Miyazaki. That's more mainstream. This is, you know, this gets into some really interesting stuff that uh, if you've only seen Miyazaki, you, you haven't experienced yet. Absolutely. Well, let's turn to War and Peace then. I'm not sure what we can do to preview, you know, War and Peace that we haven't already said. This is, <laughs> um, we continue into the fourth episode here. This episode is going to focus more on Pierre Uzakov, a character who's been with us, of course, from the beginning. Moscow is burning. It's being pillaged by Napoleon's army. The spectacle just doesn't cease. And, you know, you get more of Vondrachuk's really great subjective camera moving through this space. The choreography of the extras is really something to behold through all of this. One thing that you can follow through this particular episode is that Pierre increasingly comes to believe that his fate and Napoleon's fate are intertwined, not because they're the same person, not because he wants to be Napoleon, but that their destinies are going to intersect. He he becomes convinced of this. And this is, I think, a nice manifestation of what has been going on through the entire film in its four parts, is that Tolstoy and then Bondarchuk in his adaptation wants to constantly take us between two different levels. He's wanting to play on the on the level of history. Napoleon kind of in for that level of grand history, and he wants us to be experiencing it through individual people. And that's the figure in this case of of Pierre. There's going to be great dramatic action. We're going to wrap up a lot of storylines here that I don't want to give away at this point. But if you've, you know, if you've made it this far, don't give up. <laughs> Make it through the last episode. And even if you haven't seen the first three, um, you can really jump in. And each of these episodes are self-contained in its own way. We'll provide a, a short summary to help you feel a little bit more oriented uh, going in. But I think they do stand alone uh, as films. Uh, let's finish by talking about our documentary this week, And They Came For Us, is a documentary directed by Abby Ginsberg. Uh, as I mentioned, this is about the internment of 120,000 Japanese Americans during World War II. What's, what's interesting about this documentary? Why do we need to be talking about this now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it deals with a time in history that I don't think we talk a lot about, and yet it's, it's something that we're in some ways maybe destined to repeat. keeps coming back in, in the way that we deal with the current issues of immigration, but it tells, as you mentioned, the story of the incarceration of 
over 100,000 Japanese Americans, and in some ways their displacement from their lives, right? The way that they had to kind of leave their businesses, their homes, their life, and put those on hold and go to these camps. One of which was here not far from here. Not us, far right? from here, yeah. Yeah, Topaz Mountain. And really kind of deal with the difficulties of feeling like they're Americans, living an American lifestyle, and yet kind of being marked as other, right, during this time by a little bit of a xenophobia that was taking over the country after uh, Pearl Harbor. But it in some ways deals a little bit with kind of historical issues and, and maybe kind of a reminder of things that have come before. Yes, like, so the title, And Then We Came For Us, is a poem. And it's a post-war confession made first in, in German in 1946 by a Lutheran pastor. And the idea is that, you know, they, they came for the socialist and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionist, and then I did not speak out because I was not. But then they came for, for us, and no one was there to speak for me. So this, this documentary is really calling us to speak out for what is happening right now. And as well, something that I really liked in this documentary is the usage of photography to tell the story. The social realist photographer of the Depression era, Dorota Lange, we're using her pictures. She was in the camp, and those pictures are beautiful, and they are powerful in telling the story as much as the talking heads that, that we um, it, It's see. interesting. The government actually hired Dorothy Lang to, to take these pictures because they wanted to document how humane right. they That's were right. being. Right. And, and she clearly didn't share their opinion <laughs> you know, of it. But it, it, it's interesting. that she, People are probably most familiar with, with Lang's uh, photograph of the migrant mother the migrant from mother, the, yes. the Depression. But you know, she's this great social realist photographer. And it is. It's pretty amazing that we have all of this photography that she did of this particular moment and chapter in history that might otherwise have been not forgotten entirely, but there's something about that visual aspect that's really powerful, isn't there? Absolutely. The gaze. You cannot walk away from this documentary and forget the influence of, of the gaze on you. It really calls Kind of the look of the, the people calls out, us. out Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU, which is in turn supported by the BYU College of Humanities. The hosts and guests of this podcast are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they don't necessarily represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our sound engineer, Jojo Hegstrom-Pratt, who we can do here in person for a moment, uh, for, not, for not only being on the show with us today, but for as well always helping us to sound better after the fact. Uh, thanks go as well to the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. And until next time, we hope to see you at International Cinema and 250 The Kimball Tower. Thanks, Jojo, Mark, and Mariador. Thank, Thank you. you.